Amen. So, how are we doing today? Peachy. Well, you're here, so you're doing good um, so far. Now, if you stay awake, then you get bonus points. Um, somebody's like, woo. Everybody else is like, that's going to be a challenge. Okay. So we're in this uh, um, lie detector series, and, and there's two things that we're dealing with over these weeks. And one is um, the questions that some people have, you know, the, that we as Christians, sometimes we think, I don't know if this is really true or not. Is this right? Is it not right? Um, and then you have the other side, which is uh, the world kind of has, um, I don't know, a, a pressure that they, they put on we, us as believers, that there are um, conflicts. There are people that are going to, to try to pick your faith apart or to try to bring some kind of uh, other teaching into your life or, or um, question your faith about what you believe, why you believe it, and that kind of thing. And I want to try to help people on both sides, whether you're dealing with the question or you're dealing with somebody who's kind of questioning your faith. Um, but one of the, the lies or issues that we sometimes come up against is this question or this uh, this comment, this, this uh, criticism of faith, which is, God seems to have changed. God seems to have changed from the Old Testament to the New Testament. That, that I don't know if you've ever heard this before, or this is something that you've thought even. Um, but in the Old Testament, God seems to have been very, you know, strict and demanding and and uh, almost, you know, vengeful and judgmental. Um, and then all of a sudden, in the New Testament. We have love and grace and mercy and forgiveness and, and just things seem to have changed so much. God seems to have changed how he dealt with people from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And so the criticism that comes on to faith or onto Christians is, well, your God that you say that you worship has changed. And uh, it's not so much that they don't like the God of the New Testament, it's that they don't seem to like the God of the Old Testament. And we say that this is the same God. And uh, there's a conflict there. There's an issue. So um, the doctrine that we're dealing with today is, and doctrine is a big fancy word, just means teaching. Um, but the doctrine is immutability. And I didn't mumble. It's, it's just, a, that's the way the word sounds. Immutability is God's, unchanging nature. He cannot change. He does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Um, he is eternal in his nature, and he is always perfect and always good and always holy and always just and always loving and always merciful. And all. He's always these things. He doesn't become that. He didn't learn how to. He didn't change his mind. He's always been all these things. And so from beginning to end, what we want to do is show you how this is true, and, and so we get a grasp of how, this is the important part, how we can trust him. Because if God changes, then we have a problem with whether or not he's going to change again. 
And is he going to still act the same way? Is he going to do the same thing? Is he going to respond to us in a predictable way or is it unpredictable? And we're always trying. So this is where a lot of people falter in their faith is because they, they don't understand how God is always the same. They think he changes. And so they are always trying to change how they interact with him. Or they don't know that their salvation is secure. They don't know for sure that they're going to heaven because it seems to be like, well, maybe I, I'm going to heaven based on this, based on that. What, what's the qualifications? Was I good enough today? And they always feel like they're on edge with God. Anybody ever feel like they're kind of on edge with God? And so some of that is because maybe you don't quite grasp this concept or this understanding of who God is. He doesn't change. So you can trust his word, his promises, his character, how he's going to act, how he's going to interact with you. So let's stand as we read God's word this morning. This is uh, Exodus 34. And uh, we're going to pick it up, verse 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 8. Exodus 34 says this. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. We'll get into that. (laughs) But be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And Father, we are here also to worship, to give you praise and thanks, honor, glory as you deserve. And sometimes uh, the questions, criticisms, uh, insults um, of the world bring that into uh, contrast, Lord, they, they don't think that you deserve all the worship, all the love that we have for you, or try to undermine the trust that we have put in you. And Lord, I, I pray that today, that whether trust has been eroded or not, that it would be established firmly, that we would have a complete and absolute um, trust in, in your character and your nature and your power and your love and grace and who you are, that it would not be questioned that it wouldn't be, um, it wouldn't wouldn't have any doubt <laughs> mixed in at all. That we would know that not only do you deserve our worship, but that that you are worthy of our love and adoration. Thank you that you love us in spite of the fact that we are so hard to love. Sometimes you care for us and love us deeply and greatly beyond anything that we can even imagine. We thank you for that. You proved it through your son Jesus on the cross, Lord. You you don't need any more proof or evidence than that. And we thank you that we have that as our assurance. So today, 
continue to assure us, remind us who you are and who we are in you. In Jesus' name, amen. So we, we picked up a story here kind of in the middle. Um, and uh, the reason why is because God declares something important about his character in this passage. Um, but in order to really grasp what that means, you, you do have to understand the context. And I know that most people, many, many people here know the context pretty well. Um, but just for a reminder, we're going to go back and, and just remember what's going on. So back in Exodus chapter 3, Moses was uh, presented with an opportunity to know the Lord personally. And God had called him out of basically his sin. He had murdered somebody and he was wandering in the desert. And God had called him out and called him to a place where he said, this is holy ground, take off your shoes. And God begins to reveal himself and his calling uh, to Moses. So Moses is going to be called to go back into Egypt deliver the Israelites out of slavery and bring them into their promised land. Okay, that's a little bit of what's going on. Now, uh, when God does this, Moses says, uh, who should I say is sending me? Because the people are going to want to know that this is the same God of their ancestors, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the rest. So God says, yes, I am that God. Tell them, though, I am is sending you. And so he reveals his name to Moses. Now, this is not, in a way, this is, is and isn't his technical name. He's revealing his nature. He says, I am, meaning I am who I am. I am self-existence. I am the creator of everything. Everything that exists, exists by God's power, by his will. Nothing exists apart from God who made it and Here's the thing is only God is eternal in his nature. This is part of what I am means. It means that God is eternal in his nature. He has no beginning, no end. He doesn't age. He is outside of time. He is beyond all that. He is the one who made everything that exists and everything that exists is held together by his power and his will. We, we cannot exist apart from him. You and I do not have self-existence in our nature or our power. You, you have the hope of immortality as a human being that you will go live forever somewhere. But even your eternal existence in heaven or hell, it depends on God holding you together, allowing you to continue to live and exist. You don't have that within yourself. You didn't make yourself. You are not powerful enough to determine whether you're going to live or die or, or live forever anywhere. He determines that. And that's what he's saying. His nature is eternal and his nature is holy as part of his character but it's also part of just who he is that he is holy and so Moses takes his uh, shoes off or sandals off and he bows before the Lord and even though he kind of argues with God he does what God has called him to do and there you have the 10 plagues of Egypt and you have the deliverance of the people through the Red Sea on dry ground, God uh, judges and, and uh, destroys the armies of Egypt. And then he brings the people to Mount Sinai, okay? Just catching all these things up really fast. And then Moses goes to the mountain. God says, the people need to consecrate themselves. They need to make purify themselves so they can meet with me. And they come to Mount Sinai. 
And so what happens is God ratifies a, uh, a covenant with the people. He says, uh, here's my Ten Commandments. And so in Exodus um, 19, he tells them, here are my commands. And he's just giving them this short list. And the people say, yes, we'll do that. And so they ratify this covenant with God. But then they say, uh, we'll follow your law, but we don't want to um, have you talk to us personally because we'll die. They're just, they're terrified of God's holiness. And so they say, Moses will go and he'll talk to you and then we'll listen to whatever he says. And so they, they send Moses up the mountain to go talk to God and he's going to receive the full law of God. Okay, he's already told them the Ten Commandments, but he's going he's to receive the whole law. So Moses is up on the mountain talking to God and God's giving him the law and all the other you know, requirements, etc. And he's up there for like a month. And what happens is that the people get restless and they're like, where's Moses? He's been gone a long time. And so they grab Aaron, who's Moses' brother, and they say, this is what they literally say. This fellow Moses... We don't know what's happened to him. Make us a God that we can worship. Um, they've, they've already heard the Ten Commandments, which tells them not to worship other gods, not to make an image in, uh, that is even in the likeness of what they think God would look like or anything like that. And Aaron stupidly is <laughs> like, okay, give me all your gold. And so they take out their earrings or nose rings, whatever they got. They do have, I mean, that was one of the things they, the Bible talks about. They had all these rings. Puts it all together, melts it down, makes a golden calf. When Moses comes down, he says, what's this thing? And, and Aaron's like, oh, I threw the gold in the fire, and this is what came out. <laughs> but anyway, they make a golden calf, and uh, they're worshiping this calf, and they're partying like it's 1999 or whatever. It's more like Woodstock 69 times 100. I mean, it's like people running around. The, what it says is they sat down to eat and drink and they got up to indulge in revelry. And what that means is they are having a party where a lot of them are naked. Okay, this is the idea. These people are wildly out of control, immorally just doing whatever. And so Moses on the mountain with God, and God says, you need to go down there and take care of this, because if I go down there, it's kind of like when mom and dad have a situation with the kid, and and one of them's like, you better go talk to so-and-so, because if I do it, they're not going to live. Like, that's, depending on your household, it could be mom or dad, I don't know, but in this case, God's like, if I go down there, I'm going to wipe those people out. You better go take care of this. And so Moses goes down there. He's carrying the Ten Commandments. And <laughs> he gets down there. He sees what's going on. He throws the Ten Commandments down. They smash into a million pieces. And he's screaming at the top of his lungs to try to get control of these people that are just going nuts. And they won't listen to him. They just are wild. I mean, they're out of control. And he's finally, he's like... Who is on the Lord's side? And the Levites come and they're like, what, what can we do? And he says, take your swords and start going through the camp and just stabbing people indiscriminately. Literally, this is what they do. They just, the Levites just grab their swords and they start going through and they just start stabbing people. 3,000 people die. 
until finally they get control of this mob and get them under order. And so Moses takes the golden calf, he smashes it into dust, he puts it in water, they have to drink the water with the gold in it, which seems like a weird punishment, but I think, thinking about it a little bit further, that it's probably in order to discourage the possibility that that gold could ever be used for to make another idol. Like, it's, it's gone, okay? You're, you're not going to retrieve it, right? It's, it's no longer possible that, that this gold is going to be used for that purpose. So, finally, he gets them under control and all the rest of it, and Aaron makes his lame excuses, and Moses goes back to God. He's like, what, what on earth? <laughs> and God's like, why don't we just... Wipe out these people, start over, you and your family, we can just rebuild from here. And Moses is pleased with God, and he says that you brought these people out of Egypt by a mighty hand and miraculous works, and you didn't bring them out here to kill them. So they, God says, okay, I won't kill them, but I'm not going to go with you into, into Israel. I can't, I can't go with you because I'll, I'll end up judging these people and wiping them out. And, and Moses says, if you're not going to go with us, then don't send us. And then he says, in fact, if you're not going to be with, with us, then take me out of your book. Just erase, erase my name from the book of life. And, and I, because I, we, we cannot do anything apart from your presence and your power with us. So God says, okay. So, Here's what happens is that Moses wins over on God's grace. He knows that God has grace and mercy and forgiveness for people, but he there, there are ways to access it. And here's what begins to happen is that Moses goes back to God and he says, okay, if, if I've found favor, here's one more thing. I want to I see your glory. I want to see your, your face. And God says, you can't see my face. He says, watch Raiders of the Lost Ark, that last scene where the, okay, your face will melt off. You can't do it. It's not possible. But I'll let you see my glory as I pass by. I'll put you in the cleft of the rock. I'll put my hand over you. And after I've passed by, I'll let you see my glory as it goes by you. That's where we're at in Exodus 34. This is what is literally happening in Exodus 34. He goes back up the mountain. He sees the glory of God, and God proclaims to him, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And here's what I wanted you to see here is that when Moses heard who God was from the burning bush, he heard that God was eternal, and he began to understand God's holiness. In uh, the Exodus 34, he begins to see God's character, that he is loving and forgiving, that he is merciful and he's gracious. And these are the things that have never changed about who God is. Okay, This is who he is in his nature, in his character, and they don't change. So the question is, well, was... Is God eternal? Well, we, we don't have any question or doubt about God's eternal nature. Is he holy? So the Old Testament shows us that he's holy. We don't really have any doubt about that. In fact, the, the Old Testament is so 
overwhelmingly convincing about the holiness of God. When, when Moses received the name of God, the, the four-letter name, it's called the Tetragrammatron, okay, the Y-H-W-H, I am who I am. That's just four letters in Hebrew. And it, what it is is, uh, as we pronounce it, Yahweh. So when you hear and we're singing songs about Yahweh, that's what that is referring to. It's, it's that revelation of that name that he is holy. Now, when the Jewish people were told not to um, take God's name in vain and they understood how holy God was, they began, began to be very, very, very careful about that name. Because here's the name revealed in Exodus 3 about who God is, what his name is. And so wherever you see, like in, in Exodus 34, verse uh, 6, says the Lord in all caps in your Bibles. Most Bibles, they should have when it says the Lord in all caps. That means it is the Tetragrammatron. So even today, we've still retained this awe and respect for the name of God. We don't want to just willy-nilly put that out there. So we, we actually translate that word into the Lord all caps. And then when you see Lord in lower caps, it, it actually is a different word. But in Hebrew, what they would do is that they would put... See, Hebrew doesn't have vowels um, in, in its language. I don't. It kind of seems weird, but it's only consonants, and then they just put markers to tell you how to pronounce something. So what happened in Hebrew in the Bible was that um, they were so concerned with the holiness of God, they didn't want to pronounce his name, and so they didn't want to say Yahweh, so they put a different set of vowel markers from a different word. Uh, the word is Elohim, which is a generic word for God. They put the vowel markers for that onto the Tetragrammatron, the, the four-letter name of God, so that it was pronounced incorrectly, on purpose, Yahweh, or sorry, <laughs> Jehovah. That would have been much better if I'd have gotten it right the first time. So they mispronounce it on purpose, Jehovah, because they don't want people to say God's name or use it or misuse it in a, in a wrong way. Now, here's the other thing is that they don't generally want to even use Jehovah, and so a lot of times they'll use the generic name for God, which would be Elohim or Adonai which are not Jehovah or Yahweh at all. They're just like what we would say, God or the Lord. And so they're so careful with that that they actually went even a step further than that. And maybe your grandma did this back in the day. She would say, Oh, my heavens. Or thank the heavens. Or good heavens. Or for heaven's sake. Right? Have you ever heard that said by... Some people, you ever say that yourself? You know, what you're doing is you're taking what you would say is God and you're replacing it with heaven because you're referring to where God lives. The book of Matthew actually does this all the time. In the, in the gospel of Matthew, because it was written by a Hebrew for Hebrews, and it was actually originally what, what scholars believe was written in the Hebrew language, the only New Testament book written in Hebrew, it was written with this in mind that people didn't feel comfortable saying God. They didn't feel comfortable saying Jehovah or Yahweh or Adonai or Elohim. In fact, I remember I went to Israel and I was in a shop and I said, you know, some, I said one of those 
words to one of those terms thinking I was smart, and the guy was like, whoa, you don't say that here. Like, that's, that's a holy word, and you, you don't just say it out loud. And so, in the Gospel of Matthew, he doesn't talk about the kingdom of God, he talks about the kingdom of heaven. Whenever you see the kingdom of heaven in Scripture, what it is is a reference to a respect for the name of God to where they don't say the name of God, they say where God lives, they say heaven instead. And here's what I'm trying to help you to kind of grasp and understand. The Old Testament very clearly represents God as holy. Does the New Testament represent God as holy as well? See, this is our our issue, is that people think that something changed. That in the Old Testament, God was holy, but in the New Testament, you can just say God's name. You can... Now, here's... Can I say a pet peeve of mine? Christians shouldn't be using God's name in vain. Um, we, we still believe God is holy, but we are not nearly as legalistic or afraid of God zapping us or, you know, superstitious about some of these things, and we shouldn't be. But we should retain a respect for the holiness of God. In the New Testament, what we see is that God didn't change. He fulfilled his Old Testament law and promises, his prophecies about the Messiah. He fulfilled the purity. He fulfilled the covenant. He fulfilled the sacrifice. And and what the scripture says is they are all yes in Jesus Christ. And what that means is when Jesus died on the cross, okay, he lived the perfect life. So he fulfilled the law by living the perfect life under the law. And then when he died, he gave his perfect blood on the cross because sin requires a blood sacrifice. God's holiness requires that sin be paid for. He doesn't dismiss it. When God forgives your sin, he doesn't just do it because he likes you. Because he thinks that you're a nice person and meant well. That you had good intentions. Okay, That is not the basis by which God forgives any sin. He forgives sin based on the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. The only way that your sin ever gets forgiven is because God has already poured out his wrath on the cross, on his son. His blood was spilled and poured out for your sake, for your forgiveness. And then when you appeal to that sacrifice, when you ask Jesus to come into your life, and then God looks at that sacrifice, the fulfillment, the payment's been made, so therefore you are forgiven based on your faith in that act of God. If, if Christians misunderstand that, then, then they're basically missing the whole point of what Christianity actually is. He, he loves you. He made you in His image. He cares for you. He has a plan and a purpose for you. But your salvation, your forgiveness, your, the grace that you receive, all of it depends absolutely on what Jesus did for you on the cross. And so what the law says is that we are all judged based on the law. You're like, wait a second. We're all judged based on the law. What Romans says is that you were under the law until Christ. And when you were baptized, 
what happened was you put your faith in Jesus Christ to fulfill the law. So what happened when you were baptized, it symbolizes that you died to the law. You no longer are responsible for it. Did I confuse anybody? You were responsible until you died. But when you put your faith in Jesus Christ and in the baptism that you were baptized with was a baptism that says this symbol shows that you are dead and buried and now you have risen to, to walk a new life. That's why we always say that when we baptize people. You're buried with Christ. You're raised to walk in the newness of life. Only, I don't get very Baptist on you, but only immersion actually shows that symbol. Okay, you're dead to the Lord. How Paul says it is that it is as if um, a married couple, if they are bound by the law in their marriage, that if one or the other gets married to somebody else while they're still married and both alive, then they are committing adultery. But he says if somebody dies, then the other person by death is free from that law and they're free to marry somebody else. Because death has basically eliminated your responsibility to the law. He says it, and he's using that as an illustration of a Christian. You've been found dead with Christ. It's amazing. Now you're raised to a new life. And that's why we have confidence to be able to come to the throne of grace, to be able to have a personal relationship, because he solved that. Now, here's the other issue. And I'm only dealing with two, so just breathe a sigh of relief. Is God gracious in the Old Testament? We fully believe He's gracious in the New Testament. I mean, we, we believe we are saved by grace through faith and not by works, so no one can boast. We're not bound to the law because we're dead to the law. And I'm a new creature in Christ, and so I can come to the Lord any time. I'm actually in the priesthood of all believers, and I don't need anybody to mediate for me because I have Christ in heaven who mediates for me, and I can come to the Lord any time. And with my sin forgiven, and I'm purified by the blood of Christ, and I have the Holy Spirit living in me, but God sees the Holy Spirit in me. He sees Christ. So he sees that I am pure and I am righteous and I am perfect. Not because I really am in my, my own sinful nature, but because he sees Christ in me, right? And God is so full of grace and we're just so thankful when we sing amazing grace and we sing all kinds of things about how thankful we are that God is so gracious and loving and caring. But was he that way in the Old Testament? So here's what he says in our, our passage, look at all the things that he says. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful, gracious, slow to anger. So merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions of sin. Like eight different times he's, he's repeating and telling us just how gracious and merciful and loving he is in the Old Testament. Early on in the, the Jewish you know, uh, faith and, and establishing the Jewish people as a nation, he's revealing just how gracious he is. You say, well, but what about all those things that happened back there in Genesis? You remember some of those things? Let's just look at um, Sodom and Gomorrah. How gracious was God at, at Sodom and Gomorrah? Like on a scale of 1 to 10. Like 7? 10? One, 
Let me, let me tell you something that you don't always think about when you think of Sodom and Gomorrah. You think of Sodom and Gomorrah as like God just ripping on these evil people and destroying them indiscriminately and with anger and vengeance and all the rest of it. But he, here's what happens is that their sin was so egregious that God had determined that, that judgment was necessary. He goes to Abraham before he does this and he says, I need to tell Abraham what I'm about to do. And he says to Abraham, I'm going to wipe out Sodom and Gomorrah. And who's in Sodom? Who lives there that's related? Yeah, Lot lives there. Lot is Abraham's nephew. And so Abraham, he's concerned. I think maybe he's concerned for his nephew. Maybe he's concerned for all these people. He says, God, what if 50 righteous people live there? Will you destroy it? I mean, is that fair? And God says, I won't destroy it if there's 50 righteous people living there. They go through by fives until they get to like 20 and then they go to 10. But anyway, they get all the way down to 10 people. What if only 10 righteous people live there? Will you destroy it? And God says, I won't destroy it for 10 people. I will not. This is God's nature. This is his character. I will not judge the wicked with the righteous. I will. In fact, God will spare the wicked for the sake of just a few righteous people. He will not bring the same judgment. This is where partly we get the concept and the understanding of the rapture pre-tribulation. Okay? We, we don't believe that God is going to pour out his wrath on the righteous along with the wicked. And so he's going to rescue the church out of the world before uh, the tribulation begins to happen. Believe that or don't believe that, that's up to you. But that's part of where you get that understanding. He will not. This is God's promise. This is his character. He will not pour out wrath on the wicked and the righteous in the same way at the same time. So his graciousness was he would let tens of thousands of wicked people continue in their wickedness if there are even ten righteous people among them. And there weren't ten. In fact, there may have only been one, which was Lot. And we only know that because Peter says that Lot was righteous. And so he sends his angels in there and they pull Lot out and then God destroys. So he won't even destroy the wicked with one righteous person in the midst. That's, this is the graciousness of God at work in this situation. We think of it as just wrath poured out, but it's, there's a, a real illustration of his grace. The other one was the Canaanite conquest. This is one that always gets used and talked about like, how God is so vicious that he had perpetrated a genocide in the land of Canaan when he brought the Israelites in there. Now, what had happened, though, in reality, was in the time of Abraham, 430 years before the Canaanite conquest of the Israelites, God had determined that these people were wicked and needed to be judged because they're killing their children, they're worshiping demons, they're doing all kinds of immoral and sinful and wicked things. And God says, judgment is needed here. He gives them 430 years of grace and mercy to repent, to change, to reform, to come to to him to change. And and they don't do it. In 430 years, finally God says, "The, the tool of my vengeance, instead of fire and brimstone like Sodom and Gomorrah, instead of a flood like in Noah's day, this is the Israelites are going to be my tool for judgment. He sends them in to exact judgment. It's not indiscriminate. It's not un, 
unnecessary. In fact, it is full of grace. There's so much grace that he would... How, how old is our nation? 250 years-ish. I mean, you think about adding another 150, 180 years on top of that. And God says, I'm going to have patience and mercy and grace and, and, a, and an appeal to these people for all this time. And they're going to refuse it and they're going to reject it. And they're going to continue to do what they're doing. And they're going to do horrible, atrocious things for all that time. His grace is, is, is immense when you think about that. He's gracious in the Old Testament. He's gracious in the New Testament. And it doesn't change. He he can be trusted. And this is what the ultimate issue is. Can he be trusted? Now, it's still early. How much more do you want? You tell me, Justin, he's, he wants to get out of here in 10 minutes. Okay, sorry, Justin, you got overruled. Um, this is just an interesting thing. I want to show you something because what I don't want to do is say, well, here's all the proof, all the evidence that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He fulfills his promises in Christ and all that. And he doesn't change. And here's, the, here's what I, you know. One of the things that's going to happen is somebody's going to read Scripture and say, here's a couple places where it says God repented. God changed his mind. In fact, I even already talked about one place where God says, I'm going to wipe out the Israelites. I'm going to start over with Moses. And then Moses says, but God, you know, didn't you do this for a reason? And why are we? And God changes his mind. And so, so if God changes his mind, does that mean that God changes? A couple of things going on here. One is that you can trust that God wants to hear from you. He wants to hear from you. He wants you to appeal to him. He wants you to pray. He wants you to petition. He wants you to request. In fact, the, the Bible is full of God asking, pleading, encouraging, and inviting people to come into his presence, to plead their case before him, to ask for his power, his presence, and, and his intervention. And so one of the things that you can trust is that he wants to hear from you, but also that he will respond. He is not sitting in heaven like, I'm just going to do what I'm going to do, and there's no use in you praying because I'm just going to do what I'm going to do. He, he responds to us in a relationship. doesn't mean that he's changed his mind as if he's made a mistake. But here's what you're going to see. Sometimes in, in the Bible it says that God regretted something. And I'll just point out one instance. 1 Samuel 15, verse 10, says, The word of the Lord came to Samuel. God says, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. God says, I regret making Saul king. Well, that's interesting. And then you just go a few more verses in verse 28. Same chapter. Here's what it says. And Samuel said to him, to Saul, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day, and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also, so who is that? David. And also, the glory of Israel will not lie. So when he says the glory of Israel, this is one of those cases where instead of saying the, the name of God, he's using a euphemism for God, the glory of Israel, or heaven declares. He says, the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he's not a man that he should have regret. 
But over here in verse 11, it just says, I regret that I have made Saul king. Is that interesting? Because you think about that, the same person wrote both of those verses. Probably within about five minutes. I don't know how long it takes somebody to write scripture, but I mean, it didn't take him that long to get from verse 10 to verse 28, did it? How is it, on one hand, he says, I regret, and then over here he says, God is not a man that he would regret. How does that sync up and work? And here's the thing. You and I regret our mistakes, right? You and I regret our past. We regret things that we did wrong. We change our mind because we realize that I shouldn't have thought that or shouldn't have done that, and so I changed my mind. God doesn't regret his choices. He regrets your choices. He, he doesn't regret what he's done. He's sorry for what you've done. He didn't, it's not as if he didn't know, but it still makes him sad. See, our language doesn't quite have the ability to capture the, the essence of what this really means. God is not like us. He, he doesn't not see everything. He sees everything all at once. He knows everything that's happening. He understands everything that's happening. He makes all the right choices. He's perfect in all those things. But he can still be sorry for you, what you've done and what you're doing and how you're doing it and hoping, not hoping, God doesn't have to hope, wanting his will to be executed in your life, but you have this weird thing that he instilled in you, the image of God, meaning that you can choose to honor him or not, to accept him or to, to reject him, to follow him or to walk away from him. You, you have that ability. And do you think that when you walk away from God or reject him or deny his truth or reject his plan, that that makes him sad for you? Makes him hurt in his heart for your life and where it's heading and what's going to happen to it in the end. Does he know? Does he still feel sorrow over it? Does he change? And so what happens in the New Testament is that we see God can be trusted. He's the same God from beginning to end. He's the same God who is holy. He's the same God who is just he's the same God that is merciful and gracious and all of his promises are yes in Christ and what that means because the Bible says that Jesus is the same yesterday today and forever and that all God's promises are fulfilled in Jesus Christ three quick things one the Old Testament declared and proved and showed and prophesied etc that sin required a blood sacrifice in the Old Testament, they slaughtered animals. That was, the, that was sufficient for that time. But it was pointing to a perfect sacrifice in Christ. When he died on the cross and the blood was poured out, then that was the fulfillment of all the sacrificial laws and requirements. Okay, So your sin is covered under the blood of Jesus. Baptism shows that you died with Christ, so you're no longer responsible to the law, but that the fulfillment of that was through Christ on the cross. Amen? Two, there's, there's something else that begins to happen when you receive Jesus Christ, which is that you become a priest in a kingdom of priests. 
So what that means is that when Jesus was high priest, then the law changed, and that also excluded the need for a, another human being to bring you into the presence of God. You don't need any other human being to usher you into the presence of God like they did in the Old Testament because you are now a priest. Okay, So that's a pretty amazing thing. You have immediate, direct access to God because you're covered under the blood. You're a priest in this kingdom. And thirdly, the reason why is because you are holy. And you don't feel holy and you know that you make mistakes. But what has happened is that when you receive Jesus Christ into your life, you receive the Holy Spirit. A, a person in their sin cannot be in the presence of a holy God. But the Holy Spirit in you is what God sees when he sees you. So you are holy when you come into his presence. This is why we don't fear, we don't doubt, we're not confused, we're not under any kind of tor- terror. Because when we come into the presence of God, I know that God sees the Holy Spirit in me, he sees Christ in me, he sees me as holy even though I know that I've done some stupid and wrong things. That's how I can ask for forgiveness. That's how I can come back to God at any moment, no matter what has happened, no matter what I've done, I can always come back and say, God, would you forgive me? And I know that he hears me because he hears me based on what Jesus did. It's predictable because it is based on his promise, what he has told us, and he will not back down from his promise. He will do what he said, and he fulfilled all his promises in Christ. And when I appeal to Christ, then those promises are mine. I'm holy, not because I'm a really good person, but because the Holy Spirit lives in me. And so here's the interesting thing. Go ahead and get your cups if you haven't already got a cup. If you need a gluten-free, there's gluten-free on the tables. I told you a minute ago that Baptism is a symbol of the death of Christ, and it's the the symbol of your death with Christ. There's only two ordinances in the Christian faith. It's baptism and the Lord's Supper. It's interesting that both of the ordinances of the Christian faith symbolize and celebrate and reflect the death of Christ. When we take communion... The Bible says that you are celebrating his death. You are proclaiming his death until he returns. Why is the death of Christ so important that everything that we do that is symbolic or significant in the Christian faith seems to point back to the death of Jesus? Isn't he alive? Didn't he rise from the dead? And is he alive forever at the right hand of the Father, never to die again? And yet we always remember. And here's the reason why is because... The blood of the Old Testament sacrifices was what was needed to pay for sin. And when Jesus celebrated the Passover, you understand that Jesus and his disciples went to the temple. They, they were there when the lamb was slaughtered. They saw the blood poured out that the priests, when you go to the temple, it is like, it is like a slaughterhouse. They're constantly cutting the throats, bleeding out. Bulls, goats, sheep, birds for sacrifice because you have to have blood in order to pay for sin. They went there. They saw this happen right in front of them. The priests have blood up to their elbows. They're dealing with entrails and, and carcasses and, and all kinds of stuff. They're putting you know parts of the animal on this altar and they're putting parts of the animal over here. And they're always, the smells, if you've ever you know, processed your own meat, 
Okay, this is what they're seeing, experiencing, and they take that lamb that's been slaughtered, they take it back to their upper room, they cook this lamb, and they're sitting down to eat the Passover meal together. And then Jesus begins to tell them that he is the perfect sacrifice. He is the one that is going to pay once and for all. So you and I, we don't ever smell those smells. We never see the blood. We don't ever have to get our hands dirty because Jesus did it all for us. But he says, as often as you meet together, you remember what the price was that was paid for you. It did require blood. You're not saved in, in a sterile environment. You are covered by the blood of Jesus when you, when you call on his name. He cleanses you. He changes you. And it is what God looks at. It's what God refers to in order to forgive all your sin. So he says, you're never going to have to slaughter another animal again. But I want you to remember that there was somebody who paid the price. And so we're going to pray. We're going to get ready. But here's, here's the thing that you need to know. Because it is a declaration of faith. This is not just a symbol. It's not just a, this is what some people believe. This is a person declaring that I am covered by the blood of Jesus. First Corinthians says, you take it very seriously when you take communion. You check your heart. You bring yourself to the Lord and you say, God, is there anything in me that needs to change, needs to be forgiven? But ultimately what he's what he's really leading to is that if you're not a believer, do not take communion. This is not a joke to God. It's not a joke to us. It shouldn't be a joke to even a non-believer. This is a declaration of faith. I'm covered by the blood of Jesus. He has forgiven my sin. I am a a priest in this priesthood, and I have the Holy Spirit in me. You say that with confidence, then, then what you're doing is you're celebrating the price that was paid to make that true. Amen? Father, we thank you that you uh, make that possible through Jesus Christ. That we couldn't do it, we couldn't earn it, we couldn't pay for it, we couldn't buy it. If we had all the money in the world, we couldn't give it for our soul. Only what Jesus did for us pays the price. Even if we could sacrifice our own life, it would never be enough. It wouldn't be worth enough. Because you determined that it was perfect sacrifice that would pay for everyone's sin. And Lord, we thank you. Just like on the mountain with Abraham and Isaac, Lord, you provided the sacrifice. You did it again on the mountain with Jesus. You provided what was necessary, and we can only receive it, Lord. We do that today with thankfulness in our heart, with gratitude in our heart, with love in our heart, Lord. We thank you for what you've done. We receive it in faith, and we proclaim it, Lord, we pray boldly in Jesus' name. Amen. So on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread, and he blessed it, and he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is for you. Take and eat in remembrance of me. Father, we do, we thank you again for what you've done, what you continue to do, that the blood that was poured out 2,000 years ago 
is still effective today. It still has the same power, still as potent as ever, that and we can always be covered by the blood of Christ. So we thank you that you've done something eternal. You've done something permanent, something monumental. And uh, Lord, we can benefit from that eternally. Not just that we have a clear conscience and peace, Lord, which we thank you so much, but we have hope. We have a future. We have heaven as our certainty. And so we thank you for the blood poured out for us in Jesus' name. Amen. Take your cup. After the meal. I'm always amazed by this. Jesus and his disciples, he, he allows them to come to communion, to come to this place of the Lord's Supper, even though one of them is going to betray him. He says, this, this covenant in my blood is, is, is an offering. It's, a, it's an invitation. And there's no... There's no way to, to know certainly that somebody's going to receive that invitation, no matter what you do. They live with Jesus for three years, see him, the miracles, everything he did, and still say, I don't really believe that. But here's the thing, is that Jesus talking to his disciples after the resurrection, Thomas wanted to see, he wanted to put his hands in the nail holes and everything else, and and he finally sees Jesus and he believes and he worships and Jesus says, that's great. You see and you believe. Blessed are those who will believe without seeing. You talk about celebrating faith. You, you have come to a place to believe in Christ sometimes in spite of the things in your life that just don't make sense. But you know that Christ can be trusted that you can depend on him no matter what. That's what we're celebrating. Thank you, Jesus, that I can have this as my certainty, as my bedrock, as my foundation for my life. So after the meal, he took the cup. He said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Take and drink you all of it. And Lord, we proclaim faith through this uh, symbol, through this act, Lord, through communion. We uh, confess that we are sinners who need forgiving, that we're sinful creatures who need changing, that we're imperfect and we, we need learning, but you provide everything that we need. And you will always do that. You can be trusted to do that. And whatever we deal with today, tomorrow, this week, or next month, or next year, or however long you give us on this earth, we're going to trust you. We're going to seek to honor you and point back to you and let people see how good it is. 
to know the Lord. Thank you for bringing us into that relationship. We're going to walk in it, Lord, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing and just celebrate um, what Jesus has done in our life as we sing.